Greetings and welcome to VC On Air. My name is Chris Fisher. I'm a managing partner of Fund3 for Click Ventures, and I'm joined here tonight by one of my good friends of many years, Diana Wu David. Diana is actually the former Financial Times executive who created the very well-known Financial Times non-executive director training program. She is also the author of a new book called Future Proof, Reinventing Work in an Age of Acceleration. Further, she serves as an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School's EMBA Global Asia. She works with global leaders and board directors to enhance their ability to adapt, contribute, collaborate, and grow in the modern economy. Her company, Serrano Labs, invests in young people and companies that will prepare them for a bright future. Past investments include into gaming for good, robotics education, a global online training platform, and a social impact fund that also trains women to invest via peer-to-peer learning and teamwork. In addition to all this, she also sits on startup and nonprofit boards and has founded and now teaches at the non-executive director program run by Financial Times that I mentioned before. This is all in addition to several board associations and a very active career in the startup scene in Hong Kong. Welcome Diana to VC On Air. I'm so excited to have you join us tonight and I'm looking forward to learning a lot about your thoughts on governance as well as in the future of work and the future future of technology in the world. Okay, let's cut right into some questions then. So I'm just curious, when you're looking, uh, well, first of all, overall, what is your general assessment of the corporate governance quality and environment in Hong Kong? Let's start with an open question. Yeah, I guess that, so for Hong Kong, I think that since I teach board behavior and corporate governance for Financial Times non-executive directors program, we do look out at corporate governance around Asia. And CLSA has a corporate governance watch where Hong Kong is usually two or three. Okay. I actually went uh-huh. back and checked. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but it's relative to other places in Asia. So there are, you know, there are a lot of things that, that are great about Hong Kong. I think that for minority investors, there's just not a culture of protection of minority mm-hmm. investors. So, of course, it could improve, you know, I'm sure it could improve greatly for listed companies and also for startups, but it's not terrible relative to a lot of other countries in Asia. Okay, well, that's pretty good. So, so you're saying even in the public markets, there's still some room for improvement. Does that translate into private companies? I know you work with a lot of private companies also. Yeah, no, I think that for private companies, the culture is that they're, it's sort of almost like Silicon Valley. The culture is the founder or the patriarch, Mm -hmm. and that person is really running the show. And I think even in terms of financing, you find startups, for instance, who are getting money from somebody who started their own company and has made a huge amount of money. And, you know, they, they're they not really worried about the minority investor. There's not that sense that their concerns are valid mm. in, in certain respects. So, you know, I think that that, that may not be unique to Hong Kong, mm. but I see that when I, when I speak to founders sometimes. They feel like, sure, okay, give me the money, but I'm preparing to be my own, you know, kind of head honcho of the startup and mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. less concern for my investors sometimes or... Mm 
or certainly minority investors. So do you feel that the, the investors actually expect that or accept that or you know, are they grudgingly accepting that? Well, I guess that's the flip side. I think that um, in my experience of investing in startups, people often get money via relationships mm. without any due diligence. <laughs> so okay. that really distorts uh. it. And so if somebody's going to give you, you know, $500,000 without actually looking at your business plan, then clearly who cares about your governance, uh, right? Like right, you don't right. you don't have to report to that person. They didn't uh-huh. even look at your pitch, but they were like, "Oh yeah, I trust you. You're my trust brother's uncle, whatever." Yeah, yeah. Sure, okay. here, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So th- that distorts things, I think, more than I think in the U.S., where there's a sense that you should at least do some due diligence and be professional about it, even if it is your nephew. <laughs> mm, okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What's different about the board of a startup? I mean, how should what's actually what, how should startups be different? How should they be the same? What characteristics of good governance in a public company is applicable in a startup? And what is just overkill or what is even detrimental for a startup? Yeah, I think that startups, we have a lot of people who come and um, and they have a mid-sized company, often successful. Um, and I've worked with a lot of startups who come and say, okay, I'm going to set up a board. And usually my first question is really, why? Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, if you are not a listed company, you do not need a board, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, by and large. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, but I do think that they do offer some value. Um, I think that certainly for early stage startups, having a board or an advisory board that can collectively or individually give you advice or connections or be... Uh, coach to the founder or CEO, I think that's really fantastic and and useful. And Mm -hmm. I don't really think that's a real board, but I think (laughs) it's still useful. Uh, And then as people go along, then they can start bringing on some expertise that they may need, like legal or accounting or even governance. And that I think also is quite useful. But really they should think about why they would like to have a board as opposed Mm -hmm. to just assuming that you should have some kind of advisor behind you and not really having the time to service the board properly. Mm -hmm. Um, Really the things that I think apply across the board, listed, unlisted, whatever, even nonprofit, are really a culture of communication and Mm. transparency. How how formal or informal should that be? You know, how do you maintain that communication, get that engagement from, from these directors so that you, you know, as a founder, can fully utilize the value of these people and their expertise? And- I think that um, you know, the sort of classic dilemma of a founder is they would like to have a board either um, for fit for purpose, you know, to, to actually help them with the company and to run the company, sort of be coaching them to run the company. And then the other aspect is they want a board because it's sort of a halo effect. Uh, uh Um, So I think just clarifying really what the expectations are and agreeing to what, for instance, how often they will communicate with you and what your role is going to be and how you might be kept up to date with the company. 
Um, in the same way that you would do that for an investor, if you're a startup founder, you should be thinking about how you can do that in a way that both sides have agreed that, mm. okay, yeah, I would love to help you in this aspect. And if you do that and then never hear from somebody again, then of course you feel like, hmm, what was that about? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and some of the best run advisory boards that I've been on, you know, every Saturday, once a month, it was nine to 10, everybody dialed in, they always had an agenda for the meeting. They didn't pay anybody for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other individuals all had different perspectives that were interesting to me and valuable. And, you know, certainly we got, uh, it was an an accelerator, so there was deal flow. There Mm -hmm. was sort of an upside for the people on that. And Mm -hmm. it was just incredibly well run. Mm -hmm. And that that sort of shows the respect to your advisory board that I think keeps people invested in it. So there's a component also that people want to add value. If they're going to be your director, they they want to be a part of it. And so if you just kind of leave them out there uh, and don't communicate with them. Yeah. And then you go up the road of, you know, once you get to be a bit bigger, then I do think it's really valuable to have that kind of structure of a board with, um, you know, thinking about a nominating committee and, mm-hmm. and a audit committee. And that is if you plan to grow and you ultimately will um, need to have those things after an IPO mm-hmm. uh, or even if you stay private, they're good practices. You know, they are helpful to companies. And I think setting good foundations as well for a company um, as they get bigger is useful so that they don't come to a place where. You know, some companies come and they have to do an IPO and they have to like rush around Mm, and find board mm. members and they've never had a board and don't know what to do with it. And then oftentimes it's um, negative for the company because Mm. it's so chaotic Mm -hmm. once the IPO happens. Uh It's just window dressing. When should you start thinking about the IPO? I mean, is that something you start at the board or the IPO? Well, exactly. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully not at the same moment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I've seen that also. You've seen that. I know. Me too. (laughs) Kind of. And then you have. It takes you a year or two to clean everything up and get it ready for an IPO, right? Like so. But it also seems like I've seen also some founders at a very very early stage do a bit of overkill, actually, in terms of putting structures in place. Do you see yeah, that yeah, and I guess as somebody who goes, who's been a corporate entrepreneur and a regular entrepreneur and an investor, um, I can see also myself thinking, well, this is what we had in corporate. Right, so I, right. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I've also seen institutional investors who come into a s- startup that maybe is a little earlier stage than they're used to mm. coming in and demanding a level of governance that quite frankly, you know, you can either run the company or you can <laughs> or do you the can governance, do it, yeah. but uh-huh. sometimes, it doesn't make sense. you know, you, you just can't. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, it's a great question. I think it, having, um, I do think having an advisory council is useful for early stage. Um, and usually when you start to take maybe your first institutional investor, mm-hmm. that might be a good time mm-hmm. to okay. think, okay, we have institutional money. They have a reporting duty to their LPs. We're going to have to report to them. They need more than what you know what we've uh, been giving in the past. So let's discuss whether or not maybe we'll have a board mm-hmm. that that we can you know start to to get used to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when you're going through that process, like 
What kind of things are you thinking about in terms of selecting directors? Are you looking for people that can uh, help grow your business? I mean, it's, some things are fairly obvious, but is there anything, any advice you have around, should you pick somebody who has, you have, with whom you have a close relationship already or somebody you don't know? Uh, should you be shooting for the stars and trying to get those the big names like, uh, you know, you know, Mark Cuban or uh, Ariana Huffington or somebody like this on your board? Or are you better off getting uh, people that you're, you've worked with in the past? Yeah, I think probably um, a mix. You know, the the investors that you bring on board, either they could be people you know or, or not. It depends. Um, I think it's good to have somebody who you know well enough who can tell you when you're full of it or <laughs> when maybe when you're not running the board the way that you should or you know I think that that is also that's a nice thing for an advisor to have um, or for a founder to have and the the others I would look at it in the same way that a company thinks of their board composition you know what is the strategic aim of the company what do we need to have in place to make that happen and are there people who can at a high strategic level um, help us in this journey Okay. Uh-huh. And I would also think about it in sort of a six to nine year term. Mm-hmm. So okay. if you're thinking that you're going to disrupt um, the housing market, you know, are there people that can really identify risks maybe that you're mm-hmm. not aware of? Mm-hmm. Um, really be thinking of those high level opportunities and risks mm-hmm. that um, that you may not because you're really busy in the business. Hmm. Um, and of course, you know, they might have other aspects, like they have a great network for you to um, <clears throat> onboard talent or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you, your next step is to expand to, you know, a new market and they have great holding in that market. So, um, but I would look at it collectively as a group. Who are the group of people that might be useful for, hmm. to, for us to take our company to the next level? So I'm hearing a theme to be intentional in general, intentional about why I need the board, yeah. how, yeah, how, how it fits into what I'm trying to achieve. Yes. So yeah. I actually um, was told, once said, oh, you should be a board director for our company. You've been so helpful. And We've had a bunch of co- coffees, and your advice has always been great. And, and I said, why do you want me as a board director? And she was like, you know, actually, it's because my co-founder got a board director. So I feel like I need to have one. And I was like, <laughs> well, okay. that's not that's a great reason. That's an interesting reason. motivation, yeah. And no. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that being intentional about what kind of uh, value. It's a big commitment for anybody, paid, unpaid, whatever, mm-hmm. and a huge mm-hmm. financial risk to be a board director. Mm, so I think on both sides should be intentional. Hmm, okay. And, and you mentioned the, the group, uh, the, the composite of all the skills. And things. Mm-hmm. So how does diversity play into that? And how do you think about gender, race, uh, finding that right blend of, of people? Well, I guess I think of it in terms of um, having a diversity of background, opinion, function, experience, um, so that you can look out and see opportunities and risks that, you know, everybody has different filters. So um, if you have a bunch of people that have all come up through the exact same ranks, then you're going to miss stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that that's how I see diversity. And I, I think that really on a basic level, that functional diversity is important for a board um, so that you can have some people who really are financially experienced and other people who might be, uh, that might not be their skill, but it could be some other aspect of marketing or strategy or markets or product. In terms of, um, as I'm thinking about building my board, how do I actually make it worth their while? So you mentioned it by valuing their opinion and, and communicating with them, keeping them up to speed certainly must be beneficial. But, you know, I, as a startup, I probably don't have a lot of resources. What kinds of things do you see out there in terms of anything creative um, other than just giving them stock options or you know, mm. things like that? Well, I think that that is a quandary for some people. And actually, I noticed um, when I did go on a board that was giving me um, equity that the U.S. and Europe were quite different in terms Mm. of whether or not that was the right thing to do and sort of acceptable. Um, And it's always a question that gets you know, batted around. So I do think that there's um, there's sort of a history of being able to give uh, sort of half a percent to two percent mm-hmm. to board advisors who you think will add long term value. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a risk for them because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, who knows? So many startups don't uh, don't quite make it to the next level. I think as an early stage startup who's not anticipating paying their directors that you have to understand the individual motivation. So mm-hmm. when I was doing something with an accelerator, it was, oh, okay, I'm, I'm getting back into angel investing. I haven't done it for a while. Uh, this is a great way for me. It's an, an hour a month. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 And I have all of a sudden access to understand all their deal flow. And, you know, that was sort of the, it seemed like a good um way to spend my time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times it's, you know, it is some kind of passion that people have um, for specific industries, um, mm-hmm. or you can see more senior professionals who um, have sort of done the same thing uh, for a while and just, you know, refreshing and they're interested to mentor somebody who's doing something interesting and new and maybe they from their corporate position can see some risks that they might not otherwise see mm-hmm. um, so I, really it is to understand it's like sales understanding the individual what their mm-hmm. motivations are and how you can deliver on their you know their needs and desires in order to get uh, the advice or the commitment of time that you want for your own company what's the right level of involvement and what's too much and what's too little um, I think that's something that the founder should actually speak to an advisor about. So sometimes mm-hmm. it, a founder uh, who has a board of advisors, maybe they'll never meet each other, but sometimes mm-hmm. that's an asset. You know, I get to be on a board because, oh, there's some really other interesting investors or, or other people, and that's an asset for me. Um, but if I am on a board and I always have the discussion, okay, what is the expectation? Are, are you going to call me every month? Because, um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, because that's okay for me, but it might not be okay for Ariana Huffington. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I think that there is, you have to be meeting as a full board every quarter, in my okay. opinion. Mm-hmm. I think okay. that's that seems like a valid um, way to do things, even if you have to dial in. Mm-hmm. I think if you have some committees or thing, you know, task forces, I mm-hmm. guess, for mm-hmm. a startup, um, then they might meet more often than that. 
if your advisors are willing to do it once a month via dialing in, um, then you know it, it, it depends on what's right for the startup. But I think consistency is quite useful. Mm. I think what worked about the once a month even though it seemed like a lot, is that it was the same time every month. It was set a year in advance, mm. and the and it was well managed, mm, which is way better than randomly, you know, calling up and saying, "Hey, I think we need a board meeting. We're thinking about one week, but uh-huh. so and so can't make it." Those, frankly, I'd rather do it once a month. Yeah, same time. Uh, yeah no, it's a, that makes sense. What, what do you do um, if you have a, a director? They come to a few meetings and they kind of disappear or you are ghosted by them to some extent? So I guess, you know, I I think it depends if it's a proper board, then I think that the director... um, That's more difficult then. Well, it's also the director needs to be there. If you Uh have a loose collective of advisory board members and one of them starts drifting away, then you almost don't care. There's Mm -hmm. not, Mm -hmm. they don't have fiduciary duty Mm -hmm. and, you know, Uh you don't really have as much a duty of care to them either. Um, if it's a board where you know everybody else is showing up and digging in, then I think that um, I think it's not great for morale. It's mm. certainly not good for the director because they don't know everything that's going on, and it's a high risk to them personally. Um, so I think that in the event of of that kind of thing, where somebody's just not showing up, mm-hmm. which is fairly common actually (laughs) that's the reason I asked (laughs) yeah you know I don't know I think that that um, it depends on whether or not you want that person in the room yeah okay I mean Uh sometimes Uh you're like thank goodness yeah Yeah. Uh but you have to also um, I I think that it's better to have people in the room because it lessens the risk as as to you as a founder Mm -hmm. if everybody's there and you're communicating and you you're getting the questions in real time Uh then it prevents the opportunity for somebody to be out of the loop and surprised and come back and say hey what (laughs) i didn't know about this Uh you know Uh they're not going to look at themselves and say oh i missed the last three meetings they're thinking you should have told me (laughs) Uh Uh so i always think that it's good to manage them and a chair should do that as well i think that if you have a proper board and you have expectations of them, then it's important to have a chairperson who can help you manage that because you cannot do that as the CEO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would just be too much. What if you're kind of alluding to it uh, some cases, but what if you have a, a truly toxic director um, who is actually not just not showing up, but possibly showing up too much, <laughs> showing up too much or undermining or yeah, second guessing or uh, yeah, showing up too much. Um, yeah. Is there a smooth way to, you know, <laughs> let, let's say in a, in a form, informal advisory board, cause obviously it's harder to throw someone off a, a legal board. Um, well, I think that if you have a person on the board that is serving as the senior person or chair, that it is often helpful to have that person be responsible for managing the mm-hmm. board. Right. Uh-huh. So if, if there's an, in particular, if there's an external person or just somebody who seems to be taking that role, um, to have that conversation, usually those people are pretty good at those kind of conversations. Yeah, and that's, that's why that's they're... That's how they got to where <laughs> yeah. they are, right? <laughs> yeah. Sense, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so I think that that is, it's such a huge thing. And I, 
I think that one of the reasons I now teach board behavior is that I think they're, they're, I'd like to set the expectations for people going on boards as to what their responsibilities should be in terms of their technical responsibilities, but also their behavior. Mm. Because sometimes it's not malicious intent. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. most people that I talk to are their CEOs and they've been trained and drilled to deliver by directing. (laughs) Yes, okay. Uh And Uh people across the board say that when they get on a board, the biggest surprise is that expectation that um, they won't do that and that they can't do that. Yeah, Uh they're not the boss and they have to influence and they have to coach. Uh Um, And so I think that sometimes the toxic director syndrome is based on that. Um, And so being able to make somebody aware of you know, a, a different way to participate in the board, maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a good first step. But there is, there are cases where you need to remove directors, and um, you know, finding a replacement that might be with still within. It depends on the director, right? I mean, it's sometimes mm-hmm. it's an investor, and you're yeah, you're no. kind of like, <laughs> You've already do taken you have money? somebody it's else uh, yeah, that uh, might uh-huh, be, uh-huh, you know, participate uh-huh. in a different way, but still uh-huh. look after your interests, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or if you've looked at your board composition maybe you can suggest that that person you know there's lots of ways to smooth people smooth people out and bring somebody in Mm. that may have a diplomatic exit but it is very difficult the people aspect is the hardest part of boards absolutely and the you know if if all it took was compliance then we'd all be fine right (laughs) Right, there would have potentially not been a financial crisis in 2008 further in that direction then so because often, especially as startups take later rounds of financing, often their investors are asking them or insisting that they assign a director. Uh, as a founder, what level of control do you have over that, first of all? And, and what kind of questions should you ask or what ways um, what should you be, you be thinking about in that process? How early, like if you have concerns about the proposed director, how early should you uh, try to address it? Well, I think that, you know, every founder should realize that investor 101 is ask for a board seat, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. generally uh-huh. speaking, uh-huh. you're like, uh-huh. okay, tick, 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 here's all the stuff we could ask for. Uh-huh. And a naive founder will say, okay, I guess I'm supposed to give that to you. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then just take whoever they assign as well, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that, you know, on a basic level, you should push back and think about what value there would be in having either a specific board director or the investor uh, on the board. Maybe they're a smaller percentage-wise investor, but, you know, their potential strategic value is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in terms of um, a board director and uh, having that person, I think that you should set expectations and be able to say, look, I understand that you'd like to be on the board. I really expect all of my board members to add value. Mm -hmm. And it's important that they get along together and, you know, be serious about the board and be Mm -hmm. intentional and have Mm -hmm. that conversation. And maybe at at the very minimum, you'll get a better board director than just having them randomly assign somebody to your board. I mean, Uh when I was in venture capital, I was on, as a 20-something year old, I was on numerous boards didn't know what I was supposed to be. I mean, I was mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. supposed to be there because we asked for a board seat and we mm-hmm. got one and we were supposed <laughs> uh-huh. to be like making sure that 
you know, there were, I noticed any red flags. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and that was the extent to my training, which is why I felt so strongly about introducing training. Yeah, um, okay. Now and kind of educating on both sides of the found and the board. But try to get the best you can. If you're going to have to have somebody, go for somebody that's really going to add value and onboard them properly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, let them know what the expectations are. Introduce them to the other directors socialize them and maybe have some rules about how your board engages. I think just being very structured and and clear communication and transparency. (laughs) Back to that. That's a great point because that's definitely where a lot of the later misunderstandings lie is from not being very clear at the very beginning and setting that pattern of interaction and, and communication I get it. It is so hard, right? Like Uh you're trying to do so many things Uh as a founder uh and you're trying to get your product out the door and your investor is paying you for growth, right? Uh They're not uh paying you for monthly reports (laughs) at Uh the expense of growth. So so we did Uh actually, my colleague at FT, Dr. Ray Baker, he was looked into governance and Mm -hmm. he is from the listed side and audit and whatnot. And he was like, I can't believe it investors did not spend a lot of time on governance and and I was like it's about that dilemma growth mm-hmm. versus reporting and in the early stages for sure it is growth of course until something goes know, wrong until something goes wrong <laughs> and then it's about governance yeah, but but right, truly yeah. in later stages I mean it's about step by step taking the time to be to learn how to communicate be transparent and set the building blocks, maybe just some small building blocks for the future. If, if I have an investor that's proposing uh, a director that I'm extremely uncomfortable with, should I walk away from the investment or how should I approach that? Is it a serious enough issue uh, or do I try to grin and, and bear it and, and move on and focus on my business? And well, Chris, what, what do you think? Do you <laughs> I'm take an investor. The investor? <laughs> do you I, take I the try investor? not to be. We, we try very hard not to be that investor that you. you know, <laughs> we're adding so much value that uh, you want to have us on the board for sure. But uh, so, but you know, this is. Uh, you're always looking at potential investments, and oftentimes, again and again, you see somebody who is a founder who says, "I'm just taking the best terms, and I don't care who the person is." that's coming along with the, the uh-huh. investment. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> almost every single time I've seen that happen, if there is a concern, sometimes you're just oblivious and maybe there are some better questions you can ask. Um, and maybe that's the role of an advisor that has some of that um, sort of experience. It's all, when I see problems, it's always about the people. And so I would just be very careful. Mm, okay. What are your thoughts in terms of the board's responsibility for, for example, like a Theranos uh, situation? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, It seems like there were failures on multiple levels, but also the the founder wasn't necessarily straightforward about what was happening as well. What level of obligation, what level of responsibility do they share in that situation like that? Uh, for an advisory board? I mean, yeah. on a legal basis? Financial no, I mean, basis? Like more on an ethical basis. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that if they are just advising, then truly, you know, they, if it's just a loose advisory board, when I was, you know, on that advisory board for Nest, 
Um, if something had gone wrong, I would not have had the reporting. I would have not known it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in my opinion, I shouldn't be held responsible. Uh, but, uh-huh. you know, in subsequent boards where things have gone wrong, certainly I feel like I've made mistakes where I think that um, I should have asked tougher questions. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think more importantly, because I think t- tough questions are easy to ask. That's, um, <laughs> that's a good point. They should have been followed up uh-huh. and, you know, to satisfaction. And I think uh-huh. that kind of dogged uh, persistence yeah. is something that you learn, you learn over time. And it's a balance because you don't want to distract a founder who is running 150%, you know, out to, um, to grow the business. But, but you get to be better at understanding red flags and better at maybe contributing to identifying risks and even modifying those risks for the company mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. either you know finding other ways to do things that the company hadn't considered etc or it's like something even as simple as monitoring receivables mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. we need to look at this and there are some small adjustments that we can take over time or mm-hmm. or right now <laughs> <laughs> that will make a material difference for the company so i do think that morally ethically yes i think I think that integrity is really important for directors and they shouldn't be doing it otherwise. It doesn't make it necessarily any easier as a director to uncover that. But Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. the Theranos case, since I just happened to read Bad Blood oh, over time, well <laughs> I'm glad. Um, <laughs> I don't hit you with that question. <laughs> I expected so. <laughs> you can see that the the directors had, yeah, they had very little understanding of the business, and that there were people who came back with issues from the outside, including mm-hmm. employees. And the thing that surprised me was that lasted over years. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's you know in usually in some of the startups I've seen, sometimes that happens and there's a back and forth, but eventually something has to change. Mm-hmm. Like, and, I, mm-hmm. and that, it seemed to me, there were no changes. Yeah, they basically allowed it to persist, even with these flags. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I've seen companies where maybe they needed to address certain issues, maybe they needed to professionalize. Usually it's, mm-hmm. it is putting into place some of those things like, we don't really have a policy, we need better internal controls. Mm-hmm. Even like an expense reporting, yeah. you know, yeah. policy, uh-huh. something uh-huh. as simple as that. Uh-huh. And I think that if the company, you know, if you're a board director and you see that the company's making progress, then... You know, generally in my mind, that's a good sign. Mm-hmm. If the company's like, yeah, no, I don't, these guys are crazy. We don't want to listen to them. Uh-huh. They're telling yeah. you what, what you want to hear. And then when you go away and you come back a month later, two months later, that nothing has changed. So they're just kind of, yeah, yeah it's passive aggressive. Uh, performance. You know, if you're on the board of a company that has different, for instance, outlets or different products, you should be going to see at least one of those and and sort of doing your own due diligence. Mm. Even if you're not an investor, you want to have the comfort to know that that things are going well. Great. So switching gears a little bit. So you have a just a, a fascinating background. You've gone from VC, you've been an investor, you've been experienced in what US also? You worked in the US and you worked in Yeah, in actually. Hong Kong, I uh, started my career working for Henry Kissinger, which oh, is so, why I was okay. so interested uh, in Theranos. Uh, okay, okay, because <laughs> he was on the board. That's right, he was. <laughs> yes. 
Excellent. So, and, and now you've written a book, a book on the future of work. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about uh, why? <laughs> what, what drew you? Uh, what drew your interest to this? I mean, that you're, you've contributed in so many different areas. What's attracted you to this, and maybe a little bit of the story of what the book's about? I so I think that um, it was a combination of working with board directors and my investing in education, and my investments have focused on future of work broadly. Hmm. I'm interested in and have a thesis that the future of work is changing and that there will be new ways people work and that new ways people are recruited and new ways people are educated for lifelong learning. So that was my focus for investing in tech. And in the meantime, I was launching a program for directors and realizing that at that level as well, People are just people who have basically already grown up, mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, in some ways. <laughs> yeah, in in a different with a different paradigm of going to school and you know hopefully getting into a good school and working for whatever brand name was going to solve all their problems, and they were realizing that it that it wasn't really that work is changing. And that rather than just learning and becoming expert in their one domain, that there were certain skills like having an agile mindset mm. or um, reinventing themselves because the average SMP, I think, is a lifespan of 12 years now. Mm. So you can't mm-hmm. just go and do one thing and have one job and one career. You actually have to, um, like a startup, pivot and think about different ways to apply your talents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what led me to write the book, is a lot of people saying, gee, I don't know what to do. And at that time also, I was leaving corporate again <laughs> <laughs> to have more of a portfolio career. And um, mm-hmm. and so I was also thinking, yeah, this is interesting. There's new ways to work. And I'm going to, to forge that path. I'm going to talk to a bunch of people who are doing this well mm. and see what I can find. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I'll write a book. And then I won't have to go on 80 more coffee dates <laughs> with, with a bunch of people going, what should we do? What are we supposed <laughs> to be doing here? You know, uh-huh, and uh-huh. I can um, just have this book. And it was interesting and a new adventure just to write that book. Um, so it was do, great. Do you feel after all these conversations that you have a pretty clear sense of where things are going? Or is it a few multiple paths? Yeah, I think it could go, <laughs> it could go either <laughs> way. <laughs> I guess you know, I guess you, yeah. <clears throat> but I think that that was, I think that sort of the point is that mm-hmm. things are changing quickly and people have to be adaptable. And there are certain specific things they can do to, to live in that world, mm-hmm. not to live in a very structured, sane world, uh-huh. to expect that things will change and that they can develop more agility. They can develop an ability to, to kind of test things and invest in things and have tighter feedback loops that will tell them, give them information and then go forward on that basis. Mm-hmm. And that's not the corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. So that's a different paradigm. And so that, that's really what I found. And the other thing I found, which I think is important, is that the people who I spoke to I thought were going to be um, thinking about more about work-life integration. And what I found is that they were extremely ambitious, usually had decided that they had gone to the top of their game in whatever game they were playing, and were ambitious to live life on their own terms. 
Hmm. Okay. So they had kind of taken that ambition. Like I was always told I need to go to Harvard and then I need to go to McKinsey and then I need to work at X Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had just refocused it on, you know what? I only get one life. I'm going to live the best possible life. So that includes understanding really what it is important to me uh-huh. and allocating time and money to that mm-hmm. and, um, and really being the best person that I could possibly be on my own terms. Not just being what you're, I was told. You're not just talking about millennials here. You're actually talking about. I'm talking about us, Gen, man. Yes, Gen X and Gen Y. And Gen, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm absolutely because uh-huh. I think those are the people who are surprised to uh-huh. find themselves in this position. And it's part of it growing is up, I never, right? you know, I didn't think we'd be in this this position. That's definitely. Yeah, you thought you'd have it made, and you know, you'd uh-huh. retire uh-huh. and. Uh, I think we're just living longer, partly. That's part of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that for us, that means, okay, what are we going to do now in this sort of second or third career? Uh And millennials are looking at it and going, oh, this is going to be a long road. (laughs) And I am not going to just like burn myself out for 40 years so I can retire because I know that it's going to, A, not happen after 40 (laughs) years (laughs) and that I'll have a long time after that. So I think that they're they're kind of pacing themselves and looking for more meaning Mm. and taking more sabbaticals. And so, yes, I'm trying to teach perennials how to be millennials. Perennials (laughs) to be millennials. I like that. That's a pretty good, (laughs) pretty catchy phrase. Good party trick, right? (laughs) (laughs) So do you see this trend of acceleration, life getting faster you need to be more agile because product life cycles everything just seems to be shrinking things are changing more rapidly and the change is building on top of the change right so now because you know we have amazon web services we can innovate much faster than when we had to set up servers and things like that things are building on top of that is this going to continue or are we going to start to see some counterbalance as as people start to realize you know i already i can take my mobile phone i'm on it all day long working 24 hours a day already maybe i just take a step back reassess slow down well i think that's a bit about a bit what i found in the book is that you need to do that more now than ever because of the changes that are taking place. Otherwise, you get kind of caught up in the waves. So being able to have a, spend some time reflecting and having a strong sense of what your values are allows you to filter a lot of that out. Um, and a strong sense of what your, you know, your sort of purpose and why is allows you to filter the changes out and only focus or participate in in the things that are really meaningful because everything's changing all the time from for instance for me education is really a focus and I want to make changes positive change in the world related to education so Mm -hmm. if I'm just focusing on that then it doesn't really matter if there are things happening in the pet food market or whatever it is. You know? So I, I do think that people just, they can focus more and that is helpful. Do you think like, let's say 10 years from now, are people going to work harder? Are they going to work the same? Is there going to be a trend? Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, industrialization and it allowed us to move eventually to a 40 hour work week. It didn't happen right away, but people start to work in factories. They start, they go to a five day week. They regulate the hours. Is there any point you see in the future where we further shorten the work week or is it going to stay kind of the same? I think that things are going eventually to be, um, you know, an aggregation of skills and tasks. And there are already companies that are trying to categorize what makes up a job and then categorize the skills and characteristics that make up jobs 
that I, companies are identifying they might need in the future and finding people to, to do either little pieces of that mm. or finding, trying to upskill existing staff or even trying to automate some of that. So I think that the more time you spend looking at a screen, the more likely it is that those jobs or whatever you're doing <laughs> in front of that screen can be automated. Uh-huh. That can either be really good or it can be really bad or maybe somewhere in the middle. Mm. But I do think that based on the level of readiness that most companies and governments have, I think things are going to get worse before they get better. Mm. But I do feel optimistic that they'll get better. Okay, well, that's, that's a good perspective because uh, we've seen this cycle before where there's a, a major change and it takes some time for systems, institutions, governments, people to adapt to, to the change. You're overall optimistic then that people will get through this when the robots take all of our jobs and, and uh, <laughs> the cars are all driving themselves. Well, I think, for instance, that if you, in my opinion, if I know what I'm good at and what I care about and what I want to invest in learning more of, then I have leverage. I can sell you that task or whatever it is Mm -hmm. at a premium. And I think that the problem is going to be for people who are not really thinking that way and may be surprised that all of a sudden their job goes away and they haven't thought about what other skills and characteristics do I have that I can sell into this marketplace? Or if somebody insists on doing that same thing and they see, you know, for instance, those tasks that make up, uh, you know, a baker or whatever it is, and they see those being devalued and commoditized as more automation comes into the market, that's a person who's, you know, who's surprised by it and therefore Mm. is doing less and less work and getting less hours and getting paid less money for the hours they do put in that I, th- I think that's going to happen mm-hmm. and I think that's that's going to be an issue uh-huh. um, and that the people who will take advantage of it by saying oh I see what only I can do that no automation can do and mm-hmm. I'm going to invest heavily in that and c- be able to communicate that to potential buyers or employers those are the people who I think are really going to take advantage but and be working it? less hours they're going to uh-huh. be the ones uh-huh. on a uh-huh. you know proverbial four-hour work week that we hear about, uh, but I've never uh, seen anybody actually <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that plays well into your interest in education then, to help prepare people for these kind of transitions. Yeah, absolutely. Education hasn't changed much at all since, uh, you know, way back in the day uh-huh. when we were in school. And I think that parents have a huge role to play and I see them kind of filling in the gap, Mm -hmm. but not every parent has the capacity to do that time-wise or or otherwise. And so I do think it's something that we need to think about for kids. I think that there are some, that it's unevenly progressive in education Mm -hmm. and it has to Mm -hmm. do with teachers and it has to do with principals, but I haven't seen any really good opportunities in education that are really transforming. Maybe Khan Academy has, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. brought us the idea of a flipped classroom whereby mm-hmm. you're doing things on your own. And the company that I've invested in through NextWave, Nepris, mm-hmm. brings company and practitioners into the classroom via video. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that that's an interesting model. Like the the platforms that are bringing basically um, students into into the workforce and and integrating that a bit more so mm-hmm. that that they can be thinking longer term. Okay, 
what what's out there you know mm -hmm, what mm -hmm, am i preparing mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. what kind of uh mindsets do i need to have uh what kind of things i see my kids in school and i do think that they're they're working in teams they are um understanding their strengths they're doing a lot of experimentation and i think that they'll do well but mm -hmm, i don't mm -hmm. i think that's an exception uh -huh, to the uh -huh. rule in terms of education so there's still a lot of schools that haven't really fully embraced these training methods and things for the uh, for the future. Yeah, and to be fair, I put in my book that uh, I talked to my daughter. She just turned 13, and she was like, "All right, mom." I kept telling her it's about the learning. It's not about the grades. It's not about the tests. Uh -huh, and she uh -huh. said, "Look, mom, what if I want to do something?" That requires me to have a certain <laughs> test, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, yeah, uh, result. Limiting. Yeah, this is this. Uh, <clears throat> and, and I was like, got me. I, you know what? You're right. Yeah, you're still working within the system, right? The system is still what it was. Yeah. So, so what, what can I do as an individual? I can't change the education system. I can influence my children. I can influence, you know, my neighbors, and and I can try to spread ideas. But is there anything more directly that we can do as individuals to? to begin to prepare for this this future. So are you asking as an individual wanting to prepare yourself for the future or prepare others for the future? Oh, should I be asking my government to do something or should I uh, <laughs> be putting pressure, sitting on school boards, um, educating myself by reading your book, of course, but uh, then, you know, how can I uh, actually affect change in this area? I think that as people who work, the easiest way to do that is to mentor somebody, mm, okay. which will in turn mentor yourself. Uh -huh. um, so when I was asking people what they were most curious about or they wanted most in the future of work, one of the things was an intergenerational brain trust mm. so that they could understand what was going on and the um, new generations coming up the ranks and their perspectives, and then on the flip side, could be a sort of modern elder communicating the EQ that they had learned throughout their life, or you know, the sort of historical context or whatever for for what they'd done. And I think that that is something that on on both sides is really valuable, because if you ask somebody to describe their parents in a millennial generation or a Gen X generation, they'll have totally different views. Mm, uh -huh. And that makes you realize, wow, you know, the, these guys are, um, first of all, they, we may not be communicating. And, um, <laughs> and second of all, they do have different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Everybody mm -hmm. has different perspectives, uh -huh. but we have less opportunity to do the kind of, I don't know whether, you know, they call it reverse mentoring, which I don't always believe in, but it's kind of like co-mentoring, okay. uh -huh. <laughs> whereby you, you can future-proof yourself by spending some time with somebody who's coming up the ranks. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. you can help them as well by giving them your knowledge. And I mm -hmm. think that's just, an, that's low-hanging fruit. More people should do it. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. When I've been most successful is when I've spent time with mentors and, and mentored people as well. It definitely, both sides of that are beneficial in, in terms of helping you to frame yeah. what you're trying to do. Get and, out of your comfort and getting zone. Out, getting you out of your comfort zone. That's exactly right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I really look forward to, to reading the book, and I hope we can talk again pretty soon. Uh, I'd, I could talk to you all day on this topic. I'm also passionate about this topic. Yep. <laughs> I think, uh, obviously, as a, as a VC, we're 
very interested in the trends, uh, you know, and a lot of this is driven by technology. I think the things we're talking about right now are because of the way that the technologies made us closer in terms of communication, in terms of, you know, globalization and, and some of these things. Uh, I think this is here to stay. It's not going to go back to what it used to be. Um, no matter what people uh, hope for, it's we're, we need to move forward and uh, come up with ways to, to adapt. D- adapt, yeah, <laughs> and to, to integrate technology into our lives in a healthy way that's yeah. uh, socially responsible and socially sustainable. And, and I think uh, the, the kind of work you're doing here is just uh, of fantastic benefit to opening the discussion, moving the discussion forward. It's a it's a, the beginning of a conversation. It's not the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank uh, you we'll very see much. How it evolves. Thank you so Great much. Great to speak to you. Great On the show goes. This has been VCOnAir.com. Catch us again next time for another interesting episode and discussion. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.